Father, um, sometimes it's easy just to go through the motions as if things are not going on within this world. We compartmentalize and forget about them. But um, there's earthquakes, as Japan just had one, and um, there's wars and rumors of wars. So we just recognize, Father, that people are dealing with a mess. People are dealing with loss. People are dealing with hurt. So we ask right now in Jesus' name that you would be with them all over the world. Father, we stand with Jesus Christ. So um, move, protect people, show up in their life. Father, I ask that um, today you would give us ears to hear, you give us eyes to see, minds to comprehend, you give us hearts with fertile soil, Father, feet that want to run with obedience. May your word that is the sword of the Spirit um, help us. Would it pierce through every lie and deceit in our life? In Jesus' name, amen. So today we are going to finish the Sermon on the Mount. Never did I imagine it would be about 20 weeks, but it is but we're going to finish it. And then um, we're going to be in the book of Galatians next. So you can start reading the book of Galatians if you want. I think you should. And um, yeah, I don't know about you guys, though. Um, I've always been amazed of how powerful storms can be. Now, I don't tell anyone this, but I used to be so afraid of thunderstorms that I would fake a stomach ache at school so I could go home because I saw big storm clouds. But don't let anyone know, right? Um, storms would scare me. They would blow trees over. They would slide cars, the thunder and the lightning. But it's always amazing how powerful they can be. Now, what's really unique is we've all seen pictures and videos of hurricanes and tornadoes. And I think of the tornado that came through Dayton a couple years ago. And I don't know if any of you guys went down to Dayton to see some of the damage. Did any, anyone actually go down there to see some of it? Unbelievable. I mean, it was a war zone. It, um, pictures did not do it justice. Um, storms are powerful. Now, the unique thing about storms is storms reveal the foundation by which that structure was built. So as we went through Dayton, we saw some big buildings completely blown over, and we saw little houses standing. Now, if um, you travel to the ocean, you often see these multi-million dollar beachfront houses. And some of them are on stilts, and others of them are um, on the ground. And what we realize is when a hurricane comes through, some of them stand and one right next to it falls. Have you ever seen that? Now, some people say, well, it was God protecting that one person, and, and it might have been. Or it could have just been the foundation 
that the builder built the house on was not very strong. So we have a picture here of one, and this is what a multi-million dollar house looks like on beachfront property, by the way, right? Like 1,800 square foot. But um, one multi-million dollar house and the one right next to it fell. So do you think these houses were built with different materials? Probably not. They're multi-million dollar houses. Do you think that um, people didn't consider the way that they built them? I'm sure they did. But the thing that is different here is the foundation. The foundation by which they were built typically means that they withstood the storm or they fell. So, was the building materials different between these two houses? No. It was the foundation. So, architecture professionals over the past, you know, several decades, I mean, probably even centuries, have been trying to figure out what the best foundation looks like. How do we keep houses, how do we keep buildings standing? There was actually a building in New York that they built um, about 10 years ago, and the way that they built it, it didn't have any um, pillars on the outside of the building. Um, they were all on the inside. So what they realized is the building was shaking too much, and they never told anyone until after, after they fixed the problem but they ended up fixing the problem so that the building didn't fall. But they were pretty, pretty scared that it was gonna fall. Nevertheless, architecture professionals over the past um, several years have studied houses near the ocean and what foundation is best for them. And what they've discovered or what significant data would show is that houses up on stilts seem to perform the best. Why? Um, I didn't go that far into it. <laughs> Probably wouldn't have understood it either way. But houses up on stilts seem to do the best. So Jesus is going to use the same analogy today about foundations. What foundation is your life built on? So I ask you that today, rhetorically. What foundation is your house built on? Now, it doesn't matter if we are talking about the foundation our house is built on or the foundation our life is built on, if our foundation is built with poor ground, no matter how much we spend on the house, it will crumble. No matter how much we serve in the church or give to the church, if our foundation is not on Jesus, our house will crumble. So therefore, um, Matthew 7, verse 24, if you have your Bibles. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house. Yet, it did not fall, because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came, 
down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the, crowd, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. So we clearly see within this analogy what Jesus is sharing. That there's two foundations and there's two outcomes. So throughout the Sermon on the Mountain, he's talked or used two a lot, right? Two gates, two paths, two destinations, two types of people, a false prophet and an authentic person. Right? And now we see two foundations. Both houses will face storms, but each house is built differently. One house is built by a wise man who built it on a rock, while another man who was foolish built it on sand. One stands and one falls. Pretty clear, isn't it? Now, we must understand is there was nothing on the outside of these houses that would have made them look different. Within this story, there's nothing on the outside of the houses that make them look different. The surrounding context in the Sermon on the Mount would make it seem as if they were very similar on the outside anyways. Because Jesus has taught us throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Mountain to use discernment, not judgment. That there's going to be many people who perform miracles, deliver demons, right? Prophesy. So see, the false prophets in Matthew 7, verse 15 through 20, had a similar outward appearance, yet they were disguised, or sorry, they were distinguished by their fruit they produced. Remember, they were wolves in sheep's clothing. They had on sheep's clothing, so they looked the part. So on the outside, they looked the part. There are also those who... Um, who are deceived by their perceived righteousness. In Matthew 21 through 23, they looked the part, right? Why? Because they prophesied, performed miracles, and delivered demons. So they looked similar. While much of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is speaking to those who religiously look like they have it together, the Pharisees. Yet, they are always trying to draw attention to themselves and look for the loopholes. So the houses are not going to be, always be distinguished by how good their foundation is based upon what their life or the outside looks like. Additionally, much of what Jesus has addressed in the Sermon on the Mount would not have been noticed at first from the outside. Remember in Matthew 5, murder wasn't simply the action, but it was anger within the heart. Adultery wasn't only the action, but it was looking at someone with lust. How can you tell from the outside whether God has graciously blessed someone or that that person is materialistic? See, these are all things that we've been learning through the Sermon on the Mount. There are people here at the church who live in modular houses, but from the outside, you'd never know. They will all appear to have a similar foundation. How many of you guys have ever been to Stu and Tamara's house? Raise your hand. 
If you've been to Stu and Tamara's house, it is a big house. They have a big family. They use it to love, love those people around them. They've had many family members live with them. They have over 100 family members come each year to stay at their house. And you're like, wow, this must be like a ginormous house. It's a big house. It's not a ginormous house. So they're still sleeping on top of each other with 100 people. But it's a modular home. They had it built in pieces in Indiana, and they brought it in, I believe, on 18 trucks. I'm kidding, four. <laughs> they brought it in on four trucks, and then they put it together. Now, when we went to his house for the first time, we didn't think that it was a modular home. But it is. So it's hard sometimes to tell what the foundation is like based upon the outside of the house. So what Jesus is saying is today is sometimes it's hard to tell based upon the outside of the house, your house, your temple, where your foundation is. What Jesus is going to get at is the way that you can tell the difference between these houses, whether they have a good foundation or a bad foundation, is actually how you weather storms. Has the world been facing a storm the past two years? Coronavirus has um, really um, caused storms in this world. And um, the government, has the government caused storms in this world, in your life? The government has caused storms in your life. What about your friends or your family members or sickness, or death, or finances? They've caused storms in your life, have they not? What Jesus is getting at is the storms of life will help you understand the foundation by which you stand on. So what we have to understand based upon this scripture right now is storms will come. You can expect it. You don't know when they will come. You don't know how they will come. But storms will come. Now the unique thing about Storms is some storms come with a warning and other storms do not, but they will come. Um, <laughs> I always think it's unique. Every year, and there's always someone in my life, and there's probably even confusion in here too. So what means that the tornado's on the ground? Is it a watch or is it a warning? Well, I, I know what it is because I was so afraid of storms, but many people are like, so when there's a tornado watch, that means you're supposed to go outside and watch for it, right? <laughs> and then when there's a tornado warning, that means you need to know that there might, they're warning you that a tornado might come, and that's wrong. That's not how it works. So to clarify this, a tornado watch means that the atmosphere is right for a tornado to take place. You're like, this is, the, this is the most truth you've ever taught. This is the only thing I've ever learned. <laughs> Taking notes today. A tornado watch, a thunderstorm watch means that the atmosphere is right. A tornado warning means that they have actively on radar or through someone else seen a tornado on the ground. You got it? So we don't know when storms are gonna come. Sometimes the worst storms are just the pop-up storms that they didn't expect. 
Sometimes we get the watches and other times we get warnings. So what we need to understand is, as Christians, we always need to be watchful, understanding that the warnings are here. So what Jesus is saying is storms will come. Verse 25, the rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because it had a foundation on the rock. So a storm came. And then in verse 27, the rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. So storms are going to come in your life. We don't get to pick the kind of storm that comes in our life. We don't get to pick tornado, thunderstorm, windstorm, hurricane, plague. We don't get to pick uh, ice, snow, earthquake, death, loss of job. We don't get to pick those storms. See, when these storms come, they reveal what is hidden from our sight. The foundation, the structure. They reveal what we built our life on. And any building that falls is tragic. You realize that? Any building that falls. Now, no one builds a building with a plan for it to fall, do they? Unless you're a three-year-old playing with your Legos. And you build this nice building, and then your sibling comes through and feels like it's a great idea to kick over the building. And then they had a storm coming because they receive your wrath. And then you have a storm coming because then you receive your parents' wrath. So no one builds a structure in hopes that it falls. Likewise, each one of us and each person within this world, they don't build their life on something that, that they think or assume or know that is going to fail. How many of you guys are building a life that you think is going to fail today? How many of you guys are building a life that think that um, you're going to go to hell? None of us are. We're not doing that. That's not our plan. So those who practice the words from the Sermon on the Mount build on a solid foundation is what Jesus is saying. Those who practice these words that we've learned over the past 20 weeks, 21 weeks, those who practice these words are those who are building on a solid foundation. Those who don't practice these words have a crumbling foundation. But we must remember that storms are a normal piece of life. Storms are a normal part. As we live this life, we are to expect them. They're going to happen no matter where you put or build your foundation. Now, our job as believers is when we face these storms, one of the hardest scriptures um, that we have to do is um, our job is to consider these storms a pure joy. That's horrible. 
I hate that. I don't want to consider them a pure joy. What I want for these storms to do is go away. Come on, somebody. I don't want the storm. What I want is the multi-million dollar house with a good foundation on the beach with only people that I like who live in that area, <laughs> right? With perfect weather on the ocean, dolphins and whales and um, sea, sea turtles, like chocolate milk and ice cream that just gives you muscles and six packs. I don't want storms. I don't want sickness. I don't want war. I don't want betraying friends. I don't want to betray friends. I don't want to have to worry about money or health. I don't like storms. I don't like working things out in relationships and friendships. I don't like having to say I'm sorry or to tell someone that they're forgiven. What I really want is just things to be perfect and me never have to do anything because it's hard. And considering storms a joy um, is something that I can't do on my own strength, which then means that I have to be more dependent on God than I can myself. And sometimes I just want to be independent and be able to control everything in my life that I don't have to trust him more. Am I only preaching to myself today? Because if I'm preaching to myself, I'm good with that. Because David encouraged himself in the Lord. I don't like storms. God's been training, training me about storms from a young age. I don't like them. But James 1, 2 through 5, as we went through the book of James, you guys should be familiar with this. James tells us in verse 2, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. I just want to not lack anything by having everything that I need and never facing a storm, by never facing a trial. But what James is telling us here, what James is telling you and I today, in your storm, God is at work. This should make your storm a little bit better. In your storm, what James is telling us is God is at work. It makes my storm a little bit better. It makes me not want to give up a little bit more because God is at work. God is producing something in us in this storm. So it's our job to consider these storms a joy. We consider them pure joy because these storms that test us produce perseverance that makes us mature and complete, not lacking anything. See, I want to choose the easy way to not lack anything, but what God says is actually you're not going to become mature and complete unless you go through a storm. The only way for you to become mature and not lack anything is to go through a trial, to endure some stuff, to expose your foundation. So the things that you're going through right now, maybe the worst thing you have going on in your life right now is gas prices. And that's pretty bad. 
but other people are going through deeper things. And those who are going through deeper things, what I want to share with you is don't give up. Hang in there. Keep fighting. Because there's a maturity and completeness that God is bringing to you through this trial. Your foundation is being exposed. Are you trusting in God or are you trusting in what you can handle? When things don't go your way, do you fix the problem or do you keep trusting God? Let's be honest. Storms are not joyful. That's why we're to count them a pure joy. Because they're producing something we need. So since storms are normal, what kind of storms do we face, right? We do face financial storms. There are many people in Scripture who have faced financial problems. The church of Antioch sent a collection of money to the poor in Jerusalem. Paul later takes up another offering for them. So financial issues are not something new to, um, to the church. But when storms come against us like this, what is revealed? Our foundation. Those whose foundation is on Christ already know that as we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, what will happen? All these things will be added. So those whose foundation is on solid ground, on Christ Jesus, they know that when they face, fi face financial issues, uniquenesses, that because God provides for the birds and the bees, right, the fish in the seas, whatever else he provides for, the flowers, I don't have something to rhyme with that. Um, yeah, nothing makes sense. So... If God will provide for them, what does Scripture tell us? He will provide for you and I as well. So this means believers' decisions when it comes to financial decision is often more about spiritual things than it is financial. Our purpose is in serving God, not acquiring things. Now, this is not the case for those whose foundation is not in Christ. See, for those whose foundation is not on Christ... Um, they're more interested in acquiring things, getting more toys. Their hearts are not about Jesus. So when financial problems come, their life is flipped upside down. See, when we face financial problems, we can understand we're be becoming mature and complete. We're trusting him. We're seeing his scripture come to life about how he's going to provide us provide for us financially. Not only will we face financial uniquenesses, we will also face health problems. Sin is such a huge issue in the world today. Um, our bodies do not work in the way that they were originally designed, and there's many reasons why. Number one, we've invited disease into our bodies. We have created GMO toxins in our food, in environments, in water. Uh, our food supply has been stripped of its nutrients. Biological weapons have been created. We have been attacked by bacteria, fungus, viruses, 
and other parasites. See, in the garden, those things were not there. But because of sin, we've invited all of those things into our world. Some people, um, yeah, some people simply just get sick too. It's not because of any of those things. Or we all just get older. So, um, yeah, if, if we don't face health problems that way, we also face health problems because people lack self-control. Texting and driving. Uh, several weeks ago, I was driving in here a couple months ago, and um, someone went left of center for four seconds, and I'm like, they must have passed out. And they bring it back, and then they go left of center two seconds, and then they bring it back, and I was on the phone, and I said, I just have to call 911. Call 911, they go left of center again, four seconds, come back. Just like, what in the world, like, how do you go left of center for one second and then just not focus, right? So surely in my mind, I'm like, they're impaired or they're having a health problem. Like something's going on. So I followed them, uh, a trooper or sheriff was not available. They were on the other side of the county. So then I followed them into Mechanicsburg. Mechanicsburg uh, pulled them over. And then um, 10 minutes later, they were released. So clearly they were impaired or anything like that. They were just distracted driving. See, some of the health problems that we face is because of our lack of self-control, right? So we will face them. Um, and as Christians, we are not immune to these ty types of storms when it comes to health problems. Some might suggest that Christians suffer more, as the Bible uh, says, that anyone who desires to live a godly life will be persecuted. But as believers, we will face health problems. Now, um, if we remember in Scripture, Paul had a thorn in his flesh, right? And he asked God three times to take that thorn from him. God, we take this from me. And God said, what? My grace is enough. And then Paul told Timothy to drink a little bit of wine because Timothy seemed to have some kind of ongoing stomach ache. And then As Asaph writes in Psalm 73, 25 and 26, whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh in my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, and he is my portion forever. See, a true Christian is subject to physical suffering, just like everyone else in this world. But our hope surpasses that of this life. The pain we feel will certainly... Um, yeah, the pain we feel is real. And we certainly groan like creation as we wait for the full redemption of our bodies. But we must remember that we are partakers in the fellowship of his suffering. Philippians 3.10, I want to know Christ. Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings becoming like him in his death. There's things we're going to endure. Those whose foundation is on Christ remember that the present suffering of this world pales in comparison to the glory that is to come 
We see that in Romans 8. Even though we may face physical problems with our friends, our family members, our co-workers, ourself, our hope is in the future and the power of the cross. But you see the foolish, for the foolish whose foundation is not on Christ, there is no hope. The suffering of this world leads them to anger and depression. There's no hope for a future. Other things we will face, other storms we will face is death. Our friends, our family member, even likely ourselves will die. There's a couple people, Enoch in Scripture did not die. So we will face death. Statistically speaking, you will face it too. But according to the Bible, you might not. Um, our friends and our family member, members, self, we will die. When a loved one dies, we grieve, and grieving hurts. It dominates our life um, for a season. And according to Scripture, death is an enemy. You can find that in 1 Corinthians 15, 26. But those who put their faith in, Christ, uh, in Christ's death has lost its, sorry. But for those who put their faith in Christ, death has lost its victory and death has lost its sting. You guys remember singing that song? 1 Corinthians 15, 55. For those whose foundation is in Jesus, to live is Christ and to die is gain. So what's better, to stay here and serve him or depart to be with him? So when um, those with a foundation in Jesus face death, there is hope. Oddly, there can eventually be peace. But for those who build their foundation on something other than Christ, it could be unbearable for them when they face loss. Sometimes they feel as if their whole world has ended. What else will we face? We will face God's judgment. Those whose foundation is not in Christ Jesus will face God's judgment. And according to this scripture, they will experience a great fall. The culmination of the Sermon on the Mount will come to pass when they face this judgment. The two gates, which one will you enter? The two paths, which one did you walk on? The two destinations, which one will you end up? We will face God's judgment. And depending on how, I guess, we participated and followed the Sermon on the Mount will help us understand where we're, we're headed. See, the other thing that um, Jesus, or that we have to be aware of, is the deceitfulness of self-righteousness. See, that's going to help us determine God's judgment in our life as well. One author says this, People who believe they are followers of Jesus Christ and servants of God will find out that they were self-deceived. All their efforts at being righteous will prove futile because they trusted themselves and their own efforts and not Jesus himself. They did much in Jesus' name, but they never had a personal relationship with him. 
See, and today's scripture continues in that theme. There are those who are wise and those who are foolish. So what's the difference between the wise and the foolish? How do we discern in our life whether we are wise or foolish? Verse 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. Verse 26. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. So it's clear what Jesus is getting at here. The difference between the wise and the foolish man is what they do in response to what Jesus says in this sermon. The result of the wise man's response is a strong house that withstands storms of life. This is the response of entering the straight gate, walking on the narrow road, and entering through, um, yeah, the small gate that leads to life. The result of the foolish man, um, his response is a house that falls with a great fall. It is the response of entering the wide gate, living on the wide path, and it concludes in destruction. The rock the wise man builds upon is true righteousness found in Jesus Christ alone. The sand the foolish man builds on is self-righteousness. I did my good deed today. Because I went to church, I'm saved. Because I tithed, I'm saved. Because I um, participated in the potluck, I'm saved. All about you and self-righteousness. What Jesus is saying here is similar to James 1.22. I do not merely listen to the, or sorry, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourself. Do what it says. You can claim anything you want, but that does not mean you make it to heaven. That does not make it true either. Uh, there's a lot of people who are claiming their identities right now. Doesn't make it right, does it? Your identity is, or your sex, your um, gender is based upon how you were born. What parts do you have? Right? I don't hear any amens. What kind of church am I preaching at now? We're going fast again. Just because you feel a certain way doesn't make it true. So just because you feel like you're serving God or just because you feel like you're self-righteous or righteous doesn't mean that you are. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. James is saying, do it. What Jesus is saying is those who build their life on the foundation of Christ are not only hearers of the word, but they're doers of the word. Amen? So you can claim anything you want, but that does not make it true. People can claim they believe in Jesus and that they have placed their faith in him. But as Jesus says here, if they do not follow through with um, following what he says and doing it, then they are like the foolish man, busy building a house on the wrong foundation, and it will collapse. Claiming to be a follower of Jesus and doing things in his name does not necessarily mean that you are saved. 
We saw that in verses 21 through 23. However, to hear Jesus' words and ignore the actions they require um, might demonstrate that we are not saved. This um, is the point of this passage, I believe. That to hear the words of God in our life, to hear the words of Scripture, to hear the words on the Sermon on the Mountain, and to throw them off as if they don't mean anything might be the fruit that our foundation is not built on Him. One author says this, I believe that the greatest tragedy in fundamental evangelical Christianity is that we have allowed and often repeated a perverted gospel in which your belief in Jesus is the work that saves you. I can hear some people saying, where are you going with this, buddy? What do you mean the belief in Jesus doesn't save us? Why are you bringing this up? Now, before you yell at me, James 2.19 says this, you believe that there is one God, good, even the demons believe that and shudder. So what pastors and what church leaders have done is, is, is we preach that what it takes for you to be saved is just, just believe on or believe in God, and you will be saved. Now, um, that same author continues in what he was sharing is, he said, let me illustrate on one or more um, occasion, in different settings, the topic has arisen. And he says this, what is the minimum belief necessary for salvation? And then he says um, that Jesus is Lord and God raised him from the dead. So is, is that when we know that we're saved based upon that belief? And then he says, or do we have to further that? that Jesus died for our sins and was buried and raised to life on the third day? So do we have to believe those first two things and then we're saved? And then, um, yeah, believe in uh, Lord Jesus, so just believe in him as Lord Jesus? What about this? Those who hear Jesus' words and believe God who sent him, do we need to believe in that? What about Jesus being the second person of the triune God? How many of these beliefs do we have to believe before we get saved? Is it just about belief? What about believing that Jesus is the creator? Do we have to believe that to enter through the golden pearly gates? What about Jesus being the substitutionary atonement? What about believing in the return of Jesus Christ? At what point of our belief system of believing in Jesus do we get saved? Is it just believing that there is a God and then we're saved? Because from the pulpits throughout generations, what has been preached is just believing will get you saved. But, there, but there's more, Jesus is saying. It's, it's more than just believing. And now you're saying, well, now you're teeter-tottering to works. I'm not. And that's where self-righteousness, the deceit of self-righteousness comes in. It's not about works because no one can boast. It's all about Jesus. But the foundation of a transformed believer will have a foundation that is following and obeying God's word to the best of their ability. See, the result in us thinking that we are saved because we believe is dangerous, which actually is very and highly deceptive. It's highly deceptive. I heard this stat several years ago, and I went online to confirm that I just wasn't making it up. There 
are organizations that suggest this, that in China today, that 25,000 to 100,000 people are being saved every day. Praise God. Like, that's something to get excited about. But you do the math of 100,000 people times 365, and you're like, why isn't China a Christian nation? Why do they have to continue to hide in caves? And why can't they have Bibles? Why are they being persecuted if it's a Christian nation? Here's why. What we've, what preachers and teachers and maybe Christian leaders have allowed to happen is in a room they've said, hey, if you believe on or in Jesus today, raise your hand. So you get people highly emotional and they raise their hand and they believe on Jesus and 100,000 people a day are saying, yeah, I believe in God. But a belief alone does not save you because if belief alone save you, saves you, guess who's going to be in heaven with us? Satan and his demons. Why? Because they believe in God and they sometimes do more than us. They tremble. There's a reverence before him. So the truth is, it's really hard to know how many people are coming to Christ. It's hard to know um, because the evidence isn't just in believing. The evidence is a, life is a life changed through the power of the Holy Spirit. And that is revealed to us as we face storms in life. If I wanted to, I could tell you that um, <laughs> I could come in here and I could say, hey, we, we've had 70 kids at the school system this year give their life to Christ or believe on Jesus. That'd be manipulative. I don't know how many of these kids who's raised their hands when we've asked. I don't know how many of these kids truly are walking out this life. I don't know how many of these kids really are saying, Jesus, I trust you alone. Why? Because I haven't spent enough time with them. It's not just about a belief. See, it's evidence. Evidence is found in a life changed through the power of the Holy Spirit. And here's what I, I would believe. Salvation occurs when God, due only to his great love, extends to, extends to us his mercy and his grace and makes us who were dead in our trespasses and sin, alive together with Christ. Amen? That's when salvation happens, when he does his work in us, not just when we claim a belief in him. Okay? Um, I might be having some battles this week. Or, as Paul puts in Romans 3, 24, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. We should be careful and never say, I am saved because I, dot, 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 dot. Amen? We are not saved because I. I am not saved because of I. Instead, it should be, I am saved because of Jesus. It's the only reason I'm saved. Amen? So as we face storms of life, it reveals our belief. 
It reveals who we cling to. It reveals who saved us, either ourself or Jesus the King. But I also say this, don't become hearers of the word only, become doers. Because those who build with wisdom obey the words of this book. Amen? Let's pray. Father, um, you want us to obey? It's all about you. It's, it's, it's not even about our obedience, Father. Um, it's, all about, it's all about your sacrifice. All about Jesus' sacrifice. But in that sacrifice, Father, I do believe that there's a mark of the Holy Spirit living inside of us, and that is obedience. That's the mark of building on a good foundation is striving each day to follow what you've put before us, to follow your scriptures, to run from temptation, to love the least of these, to help the orphans and the widows, to seek your face, Father, to make disciples, to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Father, there's so many commands to turn our cheek. Father, to get rid of anything and everything that keeps us from loving you. There's so many things that you call us to be obedient in. And I just ask, Father, that you would increase your Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit in our life to run from those. Father, help us not beat ourselves up when we feel like we're not doing a good job because your mercy is more. Father, may this not be miscommunicated or misconstrued as a works gospel. Father, that then we become you know, over, overzealous about doing works to prove our righteousness. Father, our, our righteousness was already given and our righteousness was already proved through Jesus. So thank you when you see us, you see your son's blood. So help us this week. Father, I pray that any clarifying questions, um, there could be sharpening. I pray that you would bless this meal to our bodies. And um, yeah. Give us wisdom this week. In Jesus' name, amen.